Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. I've really enjoyed um, the series of Romans that we've been going through uh, this entire last semester and then this semester as well. So it's really fun that I get to be uh, with you all this morning, uh, unpacking what Paul has in verses uh, 3 through 8 of Romans chapter 12. So um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to there. Romans chapter 12, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Um, but before I do, before we like really get into this, I want to make sure that um, for those of you who are in here for the first time or, you know, have missed a couple sermons or something like that, that we're all on the same, we're on the same speed. Um, just to make sure that we can go through this all being on the same page. And so, um, broad recap, uh, so the book of Romans is uh, written by God through a man named Paul uh, to the church in Rome. Um, and so Paul, throughout the entire book, has been making this massive argument that, that, uh, that is for our Christian faith. Um, and he breaks it down in this kind of twofold argument that we're going to be continuing on, is that uh, Romans chapter uh, 1 through 11 has been this really, really deep, heady theology that Paul has been constructing. Um, all these different topics of, you know, ourselves, sin, uh, the world, what's justification, uh, God, his creation, who are the Gentiles, who are the Jews, what does grafting mean? Like all these crazy concepts to bring us all the way to where we are in chapter 12. And in chapter 12 to the end of the book, chapter 16, um, Paul is going to be kind of giving us these um, really tangible application points um, based on what he has already written in chapters 1 through 11. And so, because the reality is, is that what we believe shapes how we live. And so that's what Paul, Paul is writing in chapter 12 and on to 16, just to make sure we're all on the same page, that we're all walking in line with one another, that we're all doing the same things based on what he's already written in chapter 1 through 11. Um, a smaller recap to last week, if you haven't gotten the chance, uh, either you weren't here with us in person or uh, you haven't watched the live stream from last week, highly encourage, please go back and watch it. It was a phenomenal sermon by Ben who uh, walked us through some really complex and these really crazy concepts um, that Paul introduces uh, as he begins uh, this application segment of his argument. Um, and it was cool. I mean, he talked about, um, it kind of, he talked about God's will. Um, it kind of unpacked what that looked like. He uh, talked about living sacrifices, that we ought to be living sacrifices, which if you really kind of think about it, it's kind of this paradoxical idea that sacrifices by definition are dead, but we're living sacrifices. So it's really, really interesting. He talked about how we're not to be conformed to this world. And he, he uh, kind of walked us through what these like bad habits that the world is trying to kind of indoctrinate into us. And with that, uh, the opposite side of that coin is um, that we be renewed by, or that we're being renewed, uh, we're being transformed by the renewal of our minds. Uh, and so what that, what that looks like. And so maybe you're in here this morning, you're kind of thinking about like, okay, like there's one question that after that sermon and just the first two verses of Romans chapter 12, um, there was kind of this question that kind of went in reading this, that kind of started to kind of pop in my head. And, you know, Paul talked about a lot of things in one and two, but there was one thing that he talked about. He talked about the being us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, but he doesn't articulate how the renewed mind thinks. 
you know, he like talked about a lot, but he didn't talk about, he didn't, he didn't, we don't know, hey, Paul, what's like the tangibility of how we should think now that we have these, this renewed mind that we're being transformed by it. What does that look like? Um, and so that's what we're going to be getting into today with verses three through eight. Um, more, more specifically, how does the renewed mind think? What is the essence of the renewed mind, um, especially in our relationship to God? as well as our relationship to others and those around us. So uh, let me go ahead and read uh, verse 3, and then we'll get into it. So this is uh, Romans chapter 12, starting verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We're going to stop right there because we need, we need to camp out right here on verse three because we can't understand verses four and five without understanding verse three first. Um, and so we're gonna camp out here, really understand, really unpack what Paul is saying. So let's, uh, let's get into it. So what Paul is saying here, just in this one verse alone, is that he's talking about pride. That we ought to not think highly of ourselves more than we ought to. And so it's, it's, it's kind of funny because in this, uh, in this part of his argument, Paul's covered a lot. He's covered 11 chapters. We as a ministry have spent a semester and a half getting to where we are right now, and the first thing that Paul introduces is pride. Like, I feel like there could have been, like, so many other things that Paul could have started with that would have been like, yeah, that makes sense, but, like, like pride? Uh, okay, Paul, don't know what you're doing there, but all right. Um, but it's funny, though, because earlier on in the book, uh, Paul uh, gives, does the liberty for us and introduces why, or he tells us why pride is just so dangerous. So in Romans 1, uh, verse um, 21, uh, this is what he says, and this is, he's talking about God's uh, wrath on the unrighteous. So um, maybe I, you're kind of like getting like a little PTSD from like all the like hard truths that Ben preached on the very beginning of all this series. Uh, but this is what Paul says, uh, starting in verse 21, he says, for although they knew God, so remi- remember, this is, we're talking about a renewed mind, that we're talking about pride. Uh, and so this is what Paul is saying. Uh, uh, for although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they, but, uh, they became futile in their thinking. I'm sorry, I'm losing my place. Uh, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, thinking of themselves more highly than they ought to. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is where, this, this is, Paul is highlighting to us this kind of this fundamental aspect of this because this is not just like a Rome thing. Like, pride is not just like a Rome thing. It's like the first century Christian kind of thing. Like, pride is innate to all of us. Paul does this broad brushstroke over all of us that all of us have an innate pride built into us because of what happened in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so he's, he's showing us the dangers that, that they became futile in their thinking and that they, they exchanged the, uh, the, the truth about the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. And so this, uh, so a little bit about me. I, um, I have been married now for four years uh, to my wife. Um, we have started our family 
Um, I, we have a, a one, uh, one and a half year old little baby girl, and then we have our second little girl to be born in June. So our family's just growing, it's awesome. Um, but there's this kind of running joke in me and my wife's relationship where um, <laughs> uh, I want a motorcycle. I think motorcycles are awesome. I think they're so cool, you know, like they're like, you ride on it, like the whole thing. Preston Edison has a a motorcycle that I want to ride, but Keely won't let me, it's fine. Uh, Marriage, it's awesome. Um, But but whenever I initially pitched the idea, we're married, you know, I didn't like talk about it with her in like our premarital counseling or anything. I was like, I kind of saved it for after we're married because even if it's like I'd be buying a motorcycle, you can't divorce me. Um, And so I pitched the idea to her. I was like, hey babe, like, I've kind of wanted a motorcycle ever since before I could drive like an actual car. Can we get one? And (laughs) my wife was, uh, she said, "Um, no, Uh, they're death machines. I kindly rebuttaled and said, fair, but they're dope. And, uh, and, it's the, and it's this running joke that we have, and it's funny because I always kind of like pitch it to her. I'm like, hey, like, that's a pretty cool motorcycle, right? Like, and anytime we're driving on the highway, she's like, oh, look away, look away. And there's like a motorcycle driving by us, whatever. Um, and, uh, but there was one thing, though, that in that conversation, the initial pitch that I, that I offered to my wife that she kindly rebuttaled back saying, I don't want our kids growing up with having never met their father in the case that something were to happen. And that, of course, I'm just like, okay, thanks for that, geez. Um, and so, it cut, but it, it rocked, me, rocked me to my core, but it, hit, it struck a certain kind of chord with me that I realized that I am no longer living for myself. That I have, the, that the decisions that I make and the ramifications and the gravity of my decisions not only affect me, but they also affect my family. They affect my wife, they affect my kids, and that it's no longer me having to only be the only one to consider. And I think that's, that's kind, of a, 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 a kind of a prime example of what pride is because all of us want to be in the driver's seat of our own life. We all want to be in the driver's seat. I want to I do things that I want to do, and I want to do them the way that I want to do them, and I want to have control over this, 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 this. I want to do this with my life. I want to go do this thing, and I, I want to be this or do that. And we want to be in the driver's seat of our life. And Paul is saying that that's, that's dangerous. And there's a whole other conversation that we can get into in this, but I don't want to get too far into it. But there's this idea that now in culture, it's that, you know, I am the measure and the standard by which things should be done. That we are the highest governing authority whenever we're making um, basis, base decisions that I am the standard, that I am the measure, I'm the standard by which I, I govern and decide things in my life. And Paul's saying that's so dangerous. And that's what he says, I mean, basically at the end of verse three, he says we should, not, we should think soberly, we should, we, should have, we should think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That the standard by which we live should not be governed by ourselves, but it should be in the faith that we hold to, that the faith that has been given to us should be the ultimate governing authority of our lives. And bringing back this, this question of how does the renewed mind think when it comes to God? And it's that a renewed mind thinks of itself by faith in Jesus Christ. 
that Jesus Christ and what he's done is the highest authority and, and the governing authority by which we make all of our decisions and by the way we which we live our lives. And if you guys were with us just this last Thursday, uh, we did a worship night. It was a phenomenal worship night. We did, we did some baptisms too, and it was, it was so sweet. Um, but Ben, what he did is that he read this uh, scripture over us, um, and I, I, I couldn't help but bring it up because it's such a, it paints such a great picture for what we're talking about today. And it's Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, and it says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been put to death with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is no longer I who make the base decisions of my life, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh or the physical, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith should be the highest governing authority of our lives and that with our renewed minds, our renewed minds should think of itself by faith in Jesus Christ. And that whenever we do think about what Jesus Christ has done for us, that should snuff out every single bit of pride in our life. Because the reality is that there is nothing that we could do or have done to surmount ourselves to having any sort of merit. There's nothing that you, I mean, Paul, I don't want to get too far back into what we've already covered, but Paul very clearly states that there is nothing that you have done to earn grace. There is nothing that you have done that could deserve you mercy, but rather, but rather eternal condemnation, simply by who you are, because of sin being intertwined by the very, into the very fabric of your being. But Jesus died for you in your place. It's nothing that you did. It's all what Jesus has done. And if that, if that, if we truly believe that, if we really believe that it's Jesus Christ who loves us and who has set us free and who has saved us from that, from that future, then our lives should shape that. That we should, that every decision that we make should be driven by that. Um, and so I think that, guys, like that's just verse three. Like we've gotten this far, we're, 14 minutes in, and we're only getting to verse three. There's so much more. So I hope you guys understand that pride is super dangerous. So let's go ahead and, and keep going in verses four and five. And so he says, for as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Here, Paul flips the very idea of pride on its head by, state, by, by introducing this, um, the interdependence of the body of Christ. That is, that it is no longer, that's why he says that you should not think of yourself more highly than you ought to because you are not, you are now a part of something so much bigger than yourself. And that whenever you become a Christian, it's not just you anymore. Like you are now a member and a, and a part of the body of Christ. And that's why I think this is my own personal conviction because I've, I've had conversations with people and, you know, it's so funny that whenever you're talking to someone and they finally find out that, like, you're a Christian, they're like, oh, yeah, like, me too. Like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I go to church. Like, I went to church, like, one time. Uh, yeah, like, I said a prayer. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, my God. But I, like, don't go to church. It's like. So, like, you, like, you believe in Jesus. Yeah. But, like, do you go to, 
you don't go to church. He's like, no, I don't like really like church. I'm like, okay, so I love you. That's not a thing. And I hope you reconsider because by what Paul is saying and and all throughout scripture, really, he's saying that you are now a part of something bigger than yourself. And that's why I think, I mean, that's where we, I mean, verses uh, one and two of last week, verse three, what we just read, and now verses four and five, Paul is trying to emphasize that a renewed mind doesn't think of others as just by itself. It thinks of others as complementary, not competitive. That's how the renewed mind thinks when it comes to, to us and others. Because, so this is another side story. I'm just airing out all my dirty laundry when it comes to our marriage. Um, so my, in the first year of our marriage, uh, if you were to like see my wife, you know, strolling down the street and you saw her and like, oh my gosh, like you and Francis have such a great relationship. Oh my gosh, like what's your secret? My wife would lovingly tell you straight that the first year of our marriage was a dumpster fire. It was, it was unreasonably difficult for the both of us. And, all, and she won't tell you this part, but I will for her that a lot of it was my fault. It was 120% my fault because I had this pride and this, in also another weird way, like this insecurity and this arrogance that I felt like I had to be the man. I had to be the man of the marriage. I had to speak on behalf of my wife. I was the representative of our, our relationship. But that wasn't the case. So I say that because the first week, so the first year, first week of our marriage, fresh out the gate, man, we are, uh, my car dies. Car dies, it's a hunk of junk. Um, it was like, it would have cost like three times as much to fix it than it was what it was worth. So I was just like, all right. Like, it was like so badly f- like broken that I, like, I left it at the rental house that I lived at before I moved in with my wife. And so, um, I, uh, so my wife and I were like, okay, gotta buy a car. I was like, great. She's like, have you ever bought a car before? I was like, no. Have you? She's like, yeah. It's like, see that Jeep? That 2015 Jeep? Yeah. Yeah, I bought that. Okay, dope. Glad we're figuring this out in our first year of marriage. Awesome. Um, and so we, we go to buy my, my truck and, you know, and, and we're at the dealership and this weird thing starts to happen inside of me where, like I said earlier, like I start to feel like I have to like, I have to start speaking up. Like this is my purchase. This is going to be my truck. I should know what I'm getting myself into. I, know, I should know all the rates and the, and the things and I should be having the conversations. I've never bought a car why am I in the driver? Why am I the one trying to lead this conversation? And this entire time, I just kept stepping on my wife's toes when she's trying to have like an educated adult conversation with the car salesman. And it was so hard. Like that's just an example of our first year of marriage because it was, it was me trying to compete against my wife. I tried to compete against my own team. I tried to compete against my own flesh. The other half of my life when I should have been complimenting her for the gifts that she, had, that she, has, that she has developed. Because, I mean, she was a hairdresser for a long time, and she's a super successful hairdresser. I mean, some of y'all might know this, but, like, in the first two years, three years, my wife had, was unable to take any new clients, which is huge in the hairdresser industry. And so, like, she was, and whenever you're a hairdresser, you're self-employed. So, like, you do your own taxes, you buy your own equipment, you, you do, you know, your chair rental, all this stuff. My wife is a, finan- a, ph- a, ph- a phenomenal financial manager of our house. Why would I feel like I should be the one to take care of that if my wife is already good at it? 
it's a funny story. You can bring it up to her. She'll probably tell it way different than I am, than what I'm saying. But it's still a great story. Um, but it's so, I bring that up, though, because we look at the culture that's around us. The culture is this just rampant game of competition and comparison. And I don't need you, I don't, I don't need to tell you that. I think we've all seen the social dilemma on Netflix by now. Like we've all like follow, like we've all seen the statistics and the interviews of people who like created Instagram and Facebook. I don't need to get into that because I think we all kind of know it. But some, for some reason we still use it, I still use it. But, um, but that same mentality, that same idea bleeds into the church. It bleeds into what we do uh, as, as a church, as a singular body, because we then get to this point to where we start to think that one position is more important than another, that one body part is more important than another, that just because there's a person up here on stage means that they're more important than someone out there with a, with a thermometer gun taking temperatures as they come in the door. That for some reason, whenever people, we think that people who are up here playing guitar are more important than, more important than the people who are in the sound booth who are actually producing the sound that you hear whenever you worship. That we get this idea that, there, that there's this comparison game. Because I'm not this, I can't do that. It's like nobody's telling you that you should do that. You need to be yourself. You need to be who you are. And it's cool because Paul writes about this very same topic uh, in, a, in uh, a letter to the church in Corinth. Um, and so this is what he says in chapter 12, uh, starting in verse uh, 21. Very similar. You'll probably catch on. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts, the whole body, we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. God, but God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. But the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Paul is telling us, that's the reason why he's telling us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, and we think of ourselves with sober judgment, is because the moment that you feel like you have any sort of platform to stand on besides your, in your own merit to look down on someone else in the church, you have completely missed Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and died for you, not so that you could look down on your neighbor or look down on anybody else in here, but Jesus Christ died for you so that you could get down on their level and be with them. That we, we, with those who suffer, we suffer with them. That's the body of Christ. That's what, that's what Paul is trying to say in that, in this renewed mind that we think of, we think of others as complementary, not competitive. And the reality is that this should be a huge weight off of our shoulders. Like whenever we read this passage, it should be a huge weight off of our shoulders because then we don't have to be somebody that we're not. We don't have to be the cool worship guy. Praise God that I don't have to be Brett Musselwhite. Like, guy's got golden pipes. Like, you don't want, you don't want none of that. I don't have to be the, I don't have to have this pressure that I have to be Ben Fuquay. That you don't have to be the pressure to be anybody else. Because the beautiful part about the body of Christ is that we get to lean on other people's gifts. 
that you can have the freedom and the ability and the full and the full go ahead, the green light for you to be yourself because you contribute something to the body that is unique to you. Why would you want to do anything other than that? It's the beauty of the body of Christ. And it's cool because Paul even gives us some examples like in the rest of this, this piece of scripture, Paul gives us some examples in verses uh, six through eight and he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in portion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads, he leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, he does them with cheerfulness. Paul says you need to be who you are when it comes to the body of Christ. Because if you were to try to be somebody else or not even a part of the body, you're now a part, you are now a member of the body and if you are not a part of the body, both suffer. Because the body doesn't have your functionality. The body doesn't have your certain gifts and personality and persona and, and charisma or character. But you die because you're not a, you're not a part of the body. So both suffer. And so that's just, so Paul gives us some examples that honestly, if you, I mean, if you really look back at those, like four of those are all things that we can all do. Like there's no special something for us whenever we serve others. You don't have to have the gift of serving to like to wash someone's car. You don't have to have the, like the, the, the gift of giving to like give someone a compliment to like affirm them in their life. It's just, it's, it's, it's just how the body is supposed to be. But I want to a- ask this, and what do we do with all this? Paul has articulated that we, have a re- that we are being transformed by the n- renewal of our minds. Our, reminds, our, our minds are being transformed in the way that we think of ourselves in relation to God as well as others. And there's a lot of application that we've gone through that, that we've unpacked in just these six verses so then what do we, what, but like, but like what are the f- like tangible baby steps that we take in walking this, this, this new life out, this, this transformed life? And I have three questions, and this is kind of towards the end of our time, but I have three, que- three questions that I want you guys to ask yourselves as you guys leave here today. First one is this. How would the people I'm closest to describe me? Second one is, is similar. What am I saying about other people? Because the reality is, is that this is, this is hard. Like these questions are hard to follow through. That for you to go to someone and ask, hey, like you've seen me at my worst, you've seen me at my best. What do you think of me? How do I come across? That's you putting the knife in their hand and you laying down on the chopping block. That's hard. For us to ask, you know, what am I, like the self-reflection of ourselves, what am I saying about someone else? Jesus says in Luke uh, chapter 12, chapter six, I can't remember, but he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so one of the best ways to see what is going on in your heart of who's in the driver's seat of your life and in your heart is by seeing what are the words that you're saying? Are you speaking positively about people? 
are you tearing them down? Are you like saying like half-truths about people? What are we saying about other people? And there's, and it's cool because these questions bring in other people into our life that we cannot kill the pride that is inside of us by ourselves, which is the very like antonym of what pride is. And so, he, so we need to bring people into our life to help us see the blind spots that we have. And so my third question is, am I in genuine Christ, Christian community? Like, am I in like the, the student group and the family night that, that, that Ben and Ashley Kate were talking about? Like, do I have people who are around me who think, who, th- who, who have the renewed mind of Jesus Christ? Are they surrounding me? Are they speaking life into me? Because, because the trap is that whenever we read the scripture, it's like we have to, okay, I have to tear down the pride in my life. Like, that's step number one. Yeah, I gotta get the pride out of my life. But it's not just getting pride out of your life. It's also rebuilding Christian community in your life where they can speak truth and build you up rightly how you're supposed to. You're not just tearing away pride and removing pride from your life. You're also inviting other people into your life that will build you up. If this is your first time in this building or it's been a while since you've been here in this room, I just really want to say that I love that you're here. You have gotten the chance to see. If you, if you don't even believe in Jesus Christ, if you think it's all you know, a big hoax, I'm so glad that you're here because you have been able to see behind the curtains because the reality is that this is Paul writing to a church. This is a body of believers. And that if you're not a believer in this room, I'm so glad you're here because you've been able to see behind the curtains and see the church do business with itself. That this is how the church should act. This is how Christians should think. I'm so glad you're here and because the reality is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of our lives. He's, he's, we, we, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, we ought to imitate, we imitate me as I imitate Christ. The whole function of us is to imitate and be like Jesus Christ. There's one passage that I wanna close with that's in uh, Philippians um, chapter two. And this is how we're going to close our time. So chapter 2, verse 3. He starts off, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significantly than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that it is to get up here and to preach and to listen to your word. God, I thank you for all the people who are in this room who, who are here for the first time or they've been here a thousand times, that they still are able to be reminded of what it truly looks like to be striving after you and how our minds, how our lives should be transformed by the renewal of our minds. God, may we glorify you in everything that we do. May we see you as we should. May we see others as we should. And God, may you be built up and may you be glorified. God, we love you and we thank you. Amen.